Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, April 6th, we're studying Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. After his resurrection, Jesus shows himself alive to his disciples in the midst of their unbelief before he commissions them to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Dr. Peter Scare. Dr. Scare is professor of New Testament and chairman of the Department of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Scare, welcome to Sharp Iron. Yeah, great to be with you, Pastor. As we get started this morning, Dr. Scare, I understand that one of your passions is the gospel of Mark, particularly the sacramental ministry of Jesus there. And so as, as we get started today, going to look at the very end of Mark. I'd just love to hear any insights you have on the Gospel of Mark as a whole, its themes, its goals, particularly as we lead up into our text for today. Okay, well, Mark is a, it's a special one, dear to my heart. Of course, they all are, aren't they? I mean, That's right. uh, but Mark is, an, is really an interesting thing because um, if you would go to the academy, I mean, I went to Notre Dame for graduate school, it was quite common uh, for scholars to say that Mark was the first gospel that was written because it was somehow primitive or maybe undeveloped. And I think that's that's nonsense. I think uh, Mark was probably written later, and it was written during a time, I think, of persecution. So when you look at the kind of culture that we're living in right now, you know, where Christianity is seems like we're running up against it at every turn, I think the gospel of uh, Mark might be especially helpful to us. In some ways, I think, if, if I may say so, I think it's the most Lutheran of all the Gospels. And I, I, mean, I mean that because it's, uh, I say that because it's so prominent with the theology of the cross. So um, as an example, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the Gospel of Mark, he says simply, Thou art the Christ. And we save that great uh, confession uh, that Christ is the Son of God. We save that precisely for the cross. So it's not until the centurion says it at the foot of the cross, surely he was the Son of God, uh, is that revelation made crystal clear. And it's a profound thing to say because it's in the cross precisely that we see God's love for us. It's in the cross precisely that we see his care for us. Um, and this is set up from the very beginning of the gospel, because in the gospel of Mark, you don't get the birth story, but you begin with baptism, very Lutheran thing to do, I think. And in the baptism of Jesus, it says um, the temple was, the, I mean, the, the, the skies were torn open, and the Spirit descended into Christ, and the, the Father's voice came from heaven, but the skies were torn open. It's violent imagery, but it's the same imagery used when Christ at Christ's death, when the, the temple curtain is torn apart. So it's as if Christ himself were baptized into his death. When he, when he was baptized for us, 
he came to fulfill all righteousness. But in, in another way, too, when he was baptized, that was the seal or the warrant. That got his, the whole death process. It really is the beginning of the Passion. He is moving now, having been baptized. He's baptized into a death for our salvation. So it's, kind of very dy- it's a very dynamic gospel. And uh, it's an exciting one, too. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about Christ and, um, in a beautiful way, which we've all heard, but he says that uh, Christ is, is a lion. Um, uh, he's good, but he, he's not tame. And uh, in the Gospel of Mark, there's this sense of, sense of urgency. And, you know, maybe in the old King James, it was straight away, straight away, straight away. Hmm. Um, uh, the way we often hear it, it's often immediately, immediately, immediately. It's like our Lord lets no grass grow underneath his feet. Um, he's a guy who's going to work while it's day before the night comes and no man can work. He's a man on a mission. So uh, it's, in that sense, it's very exciting. It really is. I mean, that it's Mark has just been moving from from scene to scene to scene, it, and the word immediately. I, I guess I just have never read the whole thing in the King James. I didn't realize straight away, but I like that. That that gives a that sense of of urgency to it. We did note how beginning in chapter eleven, when you get to Palm Sunday, he really slows things down. At, at particularly those last two nights, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, just how the narrative really. It, it slows to that that pace where you just you look at every detail in in such great depth, and I, I love the connection that you made between the the beginning of the gospel and the crucifixion. I, I we had not made that connection between the baptism of Jesus and the skies being torn open there and the temple curtain being torn. But I I like that the way that you know you get those bookends. We talked about the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, but I think that the beginning with the baptism and the temple curtain, that really fits into that. With with that, I mean, with those, you know, you have Jesus being baptized into his passion, as you said. How does the resurrection account, what we looked at yesterday and what we're going to see today, how does that fit into it with you, with those bookends in 1 and 15? How does how does 16 fit into that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, really, a, it's really quite a strange thing that happens. Um, if, you, if you look at the passion narratives, in a sense— there are three basic types. One is the Gospel of John, where you know it, Jesus really is um, God walking in human flesh, and um, he, he's, when the people come to arrest him, they say, "We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth," and you can almost hear in that deep voice, "I am," and they all just fall fall down. The Gospel of Luke has this kind of beauty to it, where our Lord um, heals the ear of the of the of uh, the soldier, uh, the, the one that Peter cut off, and um, and Jesus is there saving people, even on the cross, the thief on the cross. It's beautiful. Matthew and Mark are really, um, they run along very similar lines in the Passion. And you're right, you do slow down. The one thing that's really kind of neat about it, though, is that, um, is that in the Passion, uh, Peter is actually, and I think the Gospel of Mark really is um, based on the on the eyewitness accounts of Peter, but he's very hard on himself when it comes to the denial, and because uh, he's like, and I, that's what's so great about Peter is he he allows his faults to be shown. He's not trying to make himself into this figure that you know we can't relate to, but when you get to the when you get to the uh, resurrection stories. 
then um, the, the four Gospels really do go their own way. So it's like with the birth story in Matthew and, and in Luke, you can't just, you know, cobble them together in a harmony that'll work very well. Um, and also with the passion narratives, they each have something to bring to the table. And um, I think the one thing that you would, without even reading it, um, looking at, without looking at individual words, just look at, you know, the bulk of the words and see there's not much there. I mean, nothing compared to like Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus, which is a kind of a lengthy story. Um, it's a very succinct telling of the resurrection. And um, maybe that's part of, I think, you know, Mark's theme is that if you look at American Christianity, there is this desire, I think, to get away from the cross or the crucifixion. Mormons don't even have crosses. Uh, many of our evangelical friends don't want to have a crucifix because they say, you know, we're we're resurrection Christians. Well, of course we are resurrection Christians, but you can't get away from the cross. Um, the one that we're going to meet in Mark, it's it's Christ crucified, Christ crucified and risen, and it's a, it's a short it's a shorter version. We can talk about the length, but it, it's fascinating too. We talked a little bit about. We talked a little bit about that yesterday with verses one through eight, how the angel there at the tomb says to the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, and the ESV reads, who was crucified. Dr. Velt suggested that that's probably not the best way to understand it, but rather think of it as the crucified one, that even in his yeah. resurrection, Jesus' crucifixion matters. And, and we don't we don't meet him after his resurrection as as anything other than the crucified one. The crucified one is the risen one, but we always must see him as the crucified one. And I think that that's so profound for us still today. It, I mean, something we just can't run away from. We, we have to see Jesus as our crucified Savior, certainly risen, as you said, but we can't forget he's the crucified one as well. There's also something really neat in there. And, uh, you know, you called him an angel, which we know from the Gospel of Matthew, it's an angel. Um, but in the Gospel of Mark, it's a young man and um, we remember that a young man fled uh, during the uh, when, when Christ was uh, arrested. A young man flees naked in his shame. I think that that is actually the evangelist Mark. I think he was the rich young man. He paints himself into the story of the rich young man, and it says he, he wants to follow Jesus, but he can't give up his possessions. And it says, our Lord looked at him and loved him. And who else would know that but the writer himself? And I think he came around like, you know, many young men do. And I think he's painting himself into the resurrection, just like we do in artwork. He now is the young man. And as he fled, he was naked in shame. I think of, you know, Adam and Eve, and they, they saw their sin and they felt their shame and their nakedness. Um, Mark, I think, was in shame at the, at the arrest of Jesus, running away. But now he sees himself in the tomb. He's proclaiming the resurrection. This is what he has been given to do. And um, so I think it's significant that it is a young man. And it's, it's a way of Mark kind of filling in the story for us and saying, this is how I became the, 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 this evangelist. It's almost like he's um, like adding his signature to this whole gospel. Yeah, I think that's a that's an inter I've seen that connection before, and it's really something interesting to think about that that Mark you know, puts himself not that again it was an angel we know that but the right. but Mark 
invites us to to consider the the role of the evangelist as the one and this is mark i i get to share this good news of of jesus resurrection now that news first gets shared in verses one through eight that young man tells the women verse eight ends they ran away they were afraid they didn't say anything and then we, we talked about this a little bit yesterday with one to eight at the end. And it's, it's kind of an elephant in the room because, you know, <laughs> you can open up your ESV or, or most modern translations and you'll see this note, something like some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, nine to 20. And, and so you just can't avoid it. And so a, a couple of, of questions for you on that, Dr. Scare. First, this is one of those places particularly, and when it comes to the scriptures, the, the variant readings that are there, sometimes will get thrown in the faces of Christians as a way to attempt to undermine our trust in the scriptures. You know, how can it be God's word when you have such a, I mean, you've got a whole section here that people are saying, we're not sure if it's, it's a part of it or not. How do we as Christians respond faithfully to those kinds of doubts that might get tried to thrown in our faces by some of those who would want to undermine our faith? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, there's a famous uh, text critic by the name of Bart Ehrman, and he grew up, as many of these people do, um, in a kind of a fundamentalist home, supposedly a very strict home. I'm sure it was a good home. Um, but when he first started seeing a few variants, and they were so minor, like there's when you think about the gospel stories, what really do we have as far as variants? We have the question of whether an angel came to our Lord and uh, helped him during the um, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You have the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John. It's all over the place, and I guess you have you have this. But I think the first thing people need to know is. The variants really are. If you if you took away all of them, which wouldn't be that much, um, you would still have you would still have everything. I mean, it's not like um, there's anything that's hanging on any one of them. Um, as for this, it's a it's a famous one because um, it it ends at sixteen eight, and as I guess you talked about yesterday, it ends kind of awkwardly, um, kind of like mid sentence, and you're waiting for the sentence to end, and it doesn't, and you're just kind of and you could very well argue that that's the way Mark wanted to do it, because in a sense, it's the culmination of a gospel of really misunderstanding and unbelief. Because in the gospel of Mark, you know, the, the, the thing our Lord keeps saying to his disciples is, do you still not believe? Do you still not believe? And, you know, that's the way it is for us even today. I mean, um I think, you know, when you when you look at, again, look at American Christianity, and uh, why aren't babies being baptized? You know, is it your work or Christ's work? And you want to say, do you still not believe? And why aren't people hungering for the Lord's Supper? This is my body. This is my blood. And you say, do you still not believe? So, I mean, there's, I think for pastors and I think for faithful Christians, it's important to know that our Lord himself was frustrated. I mean, you think... Sometimes you preach a great sermon, and then you think you do at least, and then it seems to make no impact at all. Well, you know, this is the way, this is the way it always was and always will be until our Lord's return. So, that's that's very true. I mean, and and the the matter, you know, do you still not believe? I I, I know in, on several occasions going through 
adult catechesis here at, at Grace, or, or even in youth catechesis as well, presenting the truth of Scripture, what it says about baptism and what it says about the Lord's Supper. And and we'll be talking about this is what various people teach that is is not what Scripture teaches. And and I'll get these questions from, from folks like, well, Pastor, you know, how— how is it that they don't believe it's the body and blood of Jesus? That's what it says. And I'm almost just yeah. like, well, I don't know. <laughs> because it, it is it's, so plain. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, that's, the, that's the, the face of a child, you know. And that's why new converts are often so great because they just, they make you smile because they, they hear it and they believe it and they're just so excited about it. And you're like, yeah, I think I should be excited about this too. I mean, they just can't believe it. They, I mean, of course they do believe it, but it's like, I can't believe it is so great. And it's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is great. It's so wonderful so to be with, around these people. No doubt. I, I mean, it, re it really is just to, to see that. So with, with the end of Mark then verses nine through 20, as you said, there, there are, there are plenty, particularly today, I think that, that, say that, yes, Mark intended to end at verse 8. But in the history of, of the church, there have also been many, many, many Christians who have understood 9 to 20 to be the word of the Lord, and, and even coming from the pen of Mark. So why, why would a, a Christian be led to believe that 9 to 20 is a part of the gospel of Mark, even with so many today suggesting it's not? Yeah, and 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 to be, we want to make sure that we say this is uh, there are very faithful people who um, this is not simply a matter of unbelief, anything like that. There are faithful people um, who think that it's not part of the original. I mean, if you look at our earliest manuscripts, the earliest evidence says it probably was not part of of the ending of the gospel. But I'm I'm a little bit more positive towards it than maybe some of my colleagues because. Um, when I look at it, I see lots, I, I see a good correspondence with the Gospel of Mark, but the other thing is this, is um, I mean, this is not all so strange, because um, if you're a movie lover, you know that um, directors often come up with their own director's cut or alternate endings. I mean, I forget, there's, there's some like really thrilling movies that have two or three different endings and because uh, the director couldn't decide or sometimes a movie goes out into the theater, you know, back before, when we actually used to go to movies before the days of COVID and um, and they'll screen it and then the audience doesn't like it because it's too much of a downer. So the director is told, no, you got to make this ending a little happier or else we're going to flop at the box office. And I think with the Gospel of Mark, there is something to that. Um now, some people think it was actually the last bit of the gospel was lost. I doubt that that's the case. Um, so the earliest manuscript. But what I think, I think there's a good chance that what might have really happened is somebody in the church came to Mark and says, you know, this is a great gospel, uh, but we'd like to have four in the canon. But, you know, this one, people really would like to have a little resurrection in there, Mark. And I, I think it's a possibility that the, the ending was really, it could have been done by the same author. I mean, I wonder about that with the Gospel of John as well, the last chapter. But uh, there's no reason, at least for me, to, to uh, doubt that um, he could have added that on at a later time. Because there are 
parts of it um now part of it looks like when you look at these stories it does look a little bit like cut and paste so it's almost as if he would have had a computer he went over and took a little bit of the luke story a little bit of the john story and just plopped him in there kind of uh but nevertheless um and the evangelists are you know they are working off of one another i mean so if if mark came after matthew he's using matthew why wouldn't he and um but uh there there is a there is this mark and twist to it that um uh, that i think really fits in very well with uh with the gospel that's uh, all, that we already have yeah i mean i think particularly and i and we'll read the text in, in a little bit but the the matter of the unbelief of the disciples that that continues even when they hear the testimony twice of jesus resurrection they continue to disbelieve that fits perfectly with what you were saying earlier about the way that we've seen the disciples and and there is a you know you start reading in verse 9 and you go to verse 20 and there it does have a bit of that that cut and paste feel i mean as i'm reading through i'm like okay i'm thinking this is john 20 mary magdalene right now i'm gonna go to luke 24 the two on the road and then i'm back in john 20 with disciples reclining at table get a little bit of, of matthew 28 and even i think some of the book of acts shows up as well as as jesus continues it, it does feel it, it does have that feel as you said, I mean, we do know that that the gospel writers knew each other. I, I can't remember which of is it is it Colossians where where Paul talks about Luke and Mark in the same greeting, which is just an a, I can't remember which which of the epistles it is now, but it's one of those, and it's just an astounding thing to think about that we I think in our minds today we kind of have a picture of the early church that's sort of stale and and not nearly as dynamic as as it really was. That that these guys knew each other. They were talking to each other, and and they were, you know, like this is what Mark wrote. This is what what Luke wrote. And and you know, how are we gonna? It's just that I I don't think we always have that picture in our minds, and, and I think we should because uh, it, it it really helps. It adds a lot of flavor to this. Yeah, I think you're right, and you know, we were helped out a little bit. You know, the movies are getting better again. There was a very nice movie on Paul, especially with his last days. He's reminiscing, and he's got Luke there, and it really humanized the story. And, uh, of course, the book of Acts is our friend when it comes to this. You look at a guy like Mark and um, how he came around, because it's, it is remarkable, because he was right there with Paul and Barnabas, and for whatever reason, you know, maybe the journey was too hard. Maybe he, maybe he wanted to stay at a Holiday Inn, and they were staying at uh, Super 8, you know, because he was not used to that kind of lifestyle. And um, so he left and wanted to come back. And Paul says, no way. There's no way you're coming back with us. And Barnabas, to his credit, what a guy. He said, okay, Paul, you know, we'll part our ways now. And Barnabas says, I'll take Mark along with me. And, uh, you know, you just go with Silas and we'll each do our bit. And, you know, what a great thing it was because Mark came around and he became useful for both. Uh, there's a lot of Paul in Mark, really. But he became useful for Peter, too. I mean, so he really, uh, that was a bold move on Barnabas's uh, behalf, whatever but Barnabas did for us. And then just so we have this gospel of, of Mark. So it's, it's mar it is marvelous to think about um, the kind of relationships and dynamics that were going on at a council of Jerusalem where you have Peter there making a speech and Paul showing off the Gentile Christians and James making the final decision. There's a lot going on there. 
Yeah, there, there really is. The, the New Testament is such a, a wonderful set of documents for us, God's Word to you and me. We're looking at Mark chapter 16 today with Dr. Peter Scare here on Sharp Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. In 2020, the world was blindsided. At the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, we quickly refocused on how to best serve the church. Our COVID-19 response team took action, reaching out and listening to our borrowers. In response, we offered a number of financial remedies that allowed our borrowers time to stabilize. We also provided online streaming kits for churches, gift cards for food pantries, financial support for LCMS church workers, and much more. Life's not yet back to normal, and that's why we're still here for you. Visit lcef.org to learn more. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, April 6th. We're studying Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. We have Dr. Peter Scare with us, professor of New Testament and chairman of the Department of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Scare, prior to the break, we were talking about Mark as a whole and how chapter 16 fits into that. Let's go ahead and read the text for today. This is verses 9 through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying, by accompanying signs. That is the text for today, Mark 16, verses 9 to 20. One of, and I know that one of the things that stands out is that at the very beginning of this text in verse 9, Jesus is not mentioned by name. He doesn't actually get mentioned by name until verses 19 and 20. And I think that's one of the things that, that sometimes people will, will point out is, well, what's, what's going on here with Mark? We know it's Jesus. He's the one that had to be the one rose early in the morning on the first day of the week. And the first thing that, that we get here is the appearance to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Why, why this appearance? I mean, again, we kind of talked about how it sort of it feels like cut and paste. Why this appearance particularly? Why is this one the the one that starts it? Yeah, I mean, this is what you said. I have, I used to have a neighbor that was like this. That, um, and it took me a while to figure it out because whenever he would talk about his wife, he would just like start start. Well, well, she said. I was like, she? Who's she? <laughs> First, it was it was always his wife because like she was the Eve. She was the woman. And I think for uh, Mark or whoever added this, Jesus is the man. So, and uh, when he when he comes in, we know exactly 
who he is. Uh, but the Mary Magdalene thing is 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 wonderful, um, and it's always confusing when we look at our different Marys. You know, who's there? What's one thing? There's a wonderful book about uh, the authenticity of these gospel stories, and if you wanted to. Um, fake a story about the women, you'd give them each different names. You wouldn't say right. Mary, Mary, and Mary. Right. It's like, uh, I mean, if that's creative writing, it's terrible. <laughs> you should really find somebody else. But that's who they happen to be. And I have a friend, Richard Balcom. He actually looked at the names of people. Um, you, can actually, you, know, you can do your homework at the time in the first century. And uh, these were not popular names like in the year 70. Because, but they were popular names in the year 30. So it shows you that there, nobody is just writing this gospel in the year 70. Like, you know, if you come across a, a number of Heathers, that might be the 1980s, but probably isn't today or certainly wasn't in 1960. So, um, so, th- so that's an interesting part. The other thing is, is um, yeah, if, you, if you're going to fake a story of the, of the resurrection, you're probably your best witness is not a woman who was demon possessed, and um, but this is the way it happened. Um, so it, the, the one is simply it's strange because it's true. So this is the the truth of Mary Magdalene receiving this, and I mean this it's wonderful because this is the truth for sinners that he comes to this, and I you know some people think she might have been the sinful woman from Luke seven thirty six through fifty. We we're introduced to her. Uh, in Luke 8, she's with the other women. She's at the cross. She is very near. She's part of the entourage. I mean, she would. she's a woman who comes into the church, and before long, you know, she's right there in the thick of things, you know, helping with the Easter breakfast, getting uh, food for the apostles. I mean, she's, she's, part, she's part of that group. And um, so our Lord honors her with this... Um, with this resurrection appearance, and again, we do know Gospel of John. Um, she she wants to cling to him, and he says, "No, you go tell my brothers, because um, that's going to be the new family. The new family is going to be at the church." Hmm. Yeah, it, I mean the the gospel for sinners. Uh, we we got that in in Mark sixteen verse seven, where the young man told those women, "Tell tell his disciples and Peter." Right, particularly Peter, yeah. go tell him, right. and right. and now it's it's Mary Magdalene, the one from whom seven demons have been cast out. Jesus is risen for her, for for these sinners. And you know, as you, as you were talking about the the unexpected nature, you you wouldn't have you wouldn't have put all these Marys in the story if you were making it up, and you wouldn't have used you know a woman from whom seven demons had been cast out as your first witness of the resurrection unless it were true. Yeah, it's it's you see this in in Mark particularly. How these what are we sometimes called them minor characters end up being the ones that that really get it, whereas the major characters don't. I mean, I think back to to chapter ten where you've got James and John, two of the the inner circle that are there asking for Jesus for those positions of glory, and Jesus says, "You don't know what you're asking." Or you could go back to the example in, in chapter eight where where Peter says, "You're the Christ," and then he says to Jesus, "No, you're not going to go to the cross." You, you have the the quote big players not getting it. But then you, you have these, you know, the, the deaf man who, who hears, and you have the, oh, the Syrophoenician woman who, who gets Jesus. You have the centurion of the cross who gets Jesus. 
and here in chapter 16, it's it's Mary Magdalene who who witnesses the resurrection and proclaims it. And then right after that, these just two of them, you don't even get their names in, in verses 12 and 13. Two of them see them. It's these right. these unnamed people, these minor people. You you wouldn't have expected them. But as Jesus has said elsewhere, he's he's making the the last first and the first last. Yeah, and I mean, it's great because in the Gospel of Mark, you find out, for instance, in Matthew, we hear about two blind men as Jesus is entering into Jericho, then to Jerusalem. In the Gospel of Mark, we know it's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Yeah. And, um, and then he gets a, regains his sight, and he follows Jesus in. I mean, it's just absolutely marvelous. He follows and he watches. And as far as people like Bartimaeus, well, you know, it's, it's like our Lord says, um, or what St. Paul says in Corinthians, that he appeared to 500, many of whom are still alive. So that you could actually, um, you know, you might, when, when you go to church, you might actually find that Bartimaeus is in the pew, you know, in front of you or something like that. It's hmm. just, these characters would have been known uh, by the early church. So uh, it's it's a great, it's a, it is, and also the other thing here is, especially, you're right, the, the faith of, the greatest faith you find is maybe the Canaanite woman and the centurion whose son was ill. You know, many will come from east and west recline while the sons of the kingdom will be in the outer darkness. Um, but but they also serve as as verifying witnesses to the twelve, so that they fill in the gaps, especially in the passion narrative. But as you said, the funny part of this is is it's. And this is why I think Mark might have written it kind of like, okay, here's your resurrection story, because they're demanding, you know, the director's cut. And he tells each story, and he says, but they would not believe it. So you have, they're doing the right things. They're mourning, and they're weeping. They love the Lord, but, you know, there's still kind of a, I don't know whether it's a stubbornness of heart or something like that. But, uh, But this is also the other thing about Mark, which is also very Lutheran is uh, Mark is the only gospel when you have a man who's got his son demon-possessed, and uh, the apostles can't get rid of the demons, and our Lord's like a little rolling his eyes, say, this is the kind that only comes out by prayer. and But it's there you have, it's only in the gospel of Mark, where the man, he says, do you believe? And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. So, I mean, that, there's such a great honesty about that. So we don't have to pretend that we have this super heroic faith. I mean, we we acknowledge our unbelief and pray that our Lord would would strengthen us in the true faith. I mean, that, that really fits, I think, with what you were saying about Mark being a, a gospel for the church in persecuted times when it was written, and and for us still today. I mean, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I've often gone to that prayer as one of those, like of the prayers of the scriptures, that's in my top five of, of ones that we should be be praying. Because it is, it's so fitting so often with, with the world, the devil, the world, our own sinful flesh attacking us. How much do we need to pray? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples needed to pray it right after the resurrection of Jesus. And I mean, he, he comes to them here afterwards, you know, they haven't believed the, the two testimonies. And he comes and rebukes them, which as, as I was reading through this, you know, I, I think, again, with, with the way I, I think about the resurrection, I, I tend to go to the other parts of the Gospels. And Jesus doesn't come across quite as harsh, I think, although it's there. You know, he, he calls those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, slow of heart, oh, oh foolish ones. 
And yeah. but here, I mean, he rebukes. He's pretty strong against against them here, which I guess that that's comforting for me because I here I am two thousand years later, living in, in a world that's constantly attacking me, the devil, my sinful flesh. To see them in their unbelief, that, and and Jesus is gracious to them. Oh, he's going to be gracious to me too. Yeah, the the thing is, is I kind of wonder. Um, you know, we, we we have these kind of experiences now in our own life. Rebuke is not such a bad thing. And when you, when you think about the way our Lord is handling the situation, um, anybody who's been in the locker room at halftime knows what a good rebuke means. <laughs> because, I, and the thing is, and when you look at it, it's kind of fun. Because it, it adds to the drama of what you're doing, and, you know, coach is right. I'm not working as hard as I could. Coach is right. I need to do what he says. Um, so rebuke can be kind of invigorating. You find it, I think, um, in the military, of course, would be a good place for rebuke. But um, if you, you don't rebuke people unless you actually care about them. There's something almost manly or vigorous about this. And... Um, because even like, um, uh, do you not, if I were to say, do you not yet believe? Are you kidding me? Well, what I'm telling you is, of course you should believe. You have every reason to believe. And, you know, if you're telling somebody, don't be afraid, you don't say, no, you know, I don't want you to be afraid. I know that the world's really, really dangerous out there, and I wouldn't want you to get run over by a car, and I, I want to make sure that you're safe. And I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Um, all you're going to do is send the people out more afraid than ever. But when you say, when our Lord says, don't be afraid. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's something wonderful about that because it's absurd. If you actually knew that the Lord was with you, he says, lo, I am with you always. There'd be nothing you could do ever that you would be afraid. You could walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If, if you know the Lord is beside you. If, you, if, you're, if you're feasting on the body and blood, why are you afraid of flesh and blood? Why are you afraid of the world? What can they do to you? So rebuke is not the worst thing in the world. It, it can be very invigorating. Yeah, I mean, I think that really, hearing, hearing the way Mark puts it here, you know, it adds the flavor to some of those other places. I mean, thinking John 20, which will be the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, where Jesus shows up in that locked room and he says, peace be with you. Yep. I guess I've probably always thought of those as more gentle words, but maybe there is a, there's a sense of urgency to those words. You know, peace be with you. This is a, this is a, a real thing that is yours. Don't be afraid anymore. I mean, and you know, I'm thinking through, through what we've got here in Mark, like when, when Jesus, you know, Thomas gets singled out poor Thomas there in John 20, but they all, they all didn't believe You know I mean? They, they all needed to see it. And, and I, I've, I think I've said this before, at least in a sermon, you know, thanks be to God that Jesus did let them see. You know, we, we shouldn't, I think we, we tend to, to say, well, you know, I wouldn't, I would, I would certainly have believed on the testimony, but I don't know that I would have. And, and thanks be to God that Jesus did let them see so that we do have these reliable witnesses so that now the word that we have, we know that it's true because Jesus did let them see that. That's a pretty important point that there were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is, is even though, you know, it looks a little cut and paste, it does show you in many and various ways he witnessed to them. So it wasn't like a one-time thing. Yeah. No, so they're all looking like, did that really happen? I'm not really sure that really happened. But he appears here and he appears there in all sorts of different places to different groups of people. And so it builds on itself. So 
I mean, our Lord does a great favor to the apostles. If he had just appeared to the apostles, then you'd have all the people saying, uh, really, guys? You know, I know it's your club that you all saw him, but how about the rest of us? I mean, we saw him do miracles. We went to the Sermon on the Mount, and but you're the only guys who saw him? I mean, that wouldn't work. So, um, so our Lord comes in. Did I really see it? I think I saw it. Yes, I saw it. And then he comes again, and then he comes again. So there, there, are, I mean, there, there are all sorts of strange and wonderful... Um, I mean, it, it, this is where I do think movies would be helpful, but you just you kind of want to put out a play like The, the Road to Emmaus. Well, what's amazing, that's what 13, verses 13 to 35 and 24 of Luke, and here we just get it in a couple of verses. So, but it, but we, but the thing is, is I think it tells you though that the gospel, the one who heard the gospel of Mark already did know, just like we do of the other stories. Yeah, I think I think that that makes a lot of sense that that this comes after because you like like we're doing right now. You know, we we know where the fuller account is. Mark is is just giving us the summaries here. Now, when he gets to the words of Jesus. In, in verses 15 and following. Again, we, we're going to hear some similarities to other places, but I think there is some unique emphases here. As Jesus gives what some might call the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world, and he says, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, which, you know, in, in Matthew, we're used to the language of, of baptizing and teaching all nations. Here, it's it's the whole creation. It's a very, I mean, this is as as big of a scope as as you could possibly have. The gospel is for for everything, even. Yeah, it is, it is grand, isn't it? I mean, just uh, it, <laughs> that's why Bible study never gets old, because hmm. it's like even the, the passion narrative. I mean, I heard, I think I heard for the first time that they, you know, Nicodemus had seventy-five pounds of uh, whatever myrrh and stuff for the body. I, I think I've heard that story, you know, dozens of times at least, and it's like. This is the, I was like, really? <laughs> so you you get something like this, all the whole creation. It's just, isn't it just wonderful? And I do wonder too. Um, I mean, this I do think it could be an example of um, maybe Mark actually did this. Uh, it's it's kind, first of all, it's got kind of Pauline language because I do think Mark learned a lot from Paul. So proclaim the gospel. And, um, you know, Matthew, it's a little bit harder. You've got to teach the people. It's always like the kingdom of the heavens. And like, what's that? You know, so you've got to teach them. Um, but this is language we're quite used to in the Lutheran church. But uh, you're going to proclaim this gospel. Then the, to the whole of creation. Now you think about Mark's ending here, in a sense. It's his way, I think, of responding both to Matthew and John's beginning. Because Matthew begins, this is the book of the Genesis. So it brings us back to the creation story. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Brings us back to creation. And I think this is very important because look at this kind of world we're living in now, where um, we're denying not simply things of belief, but things that we can obviously see with our eyes. So we are told that we can't tell the difference anymore between a man and a woman. Well, that's absurd. I mean, I, I can look at a classroom of people and I say, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy, girl. I mean, it's not, this is not hard to do. I don't need to have belief, but we're denying these things. And what we're doing is we're denying creation. And our, this is a reminder that the Lord who has risen from the dead um, is beginning a new creation. 
but he is the same Lord through which all this was made. So you go right back to Genesis, that our Lord endorses Genesis. He's not taking us away from creation. The resurrection doesn't deny creation. It's a stamp of approval and renewal of creation. So it's this man, Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead. The creator has become part of the creation uh, forevermore. So, yeah, it's absolutely marvelous in its scope here. And it brings, and, crea- and it brings creation and the gospel together. You know, crea- the gospel is not simply something other. It's, it's, um, and I tell people all the time this. is like, you know, you, you can't have the rainbow pride and Christ. You can't say that Christ is the groom of the church if you don't even know what brides and grooms are anymore. You can't say that Jesus is the Son of God if you don't even know what a son is or what a father is. These things, the gospel and creation, they go together, and you cannot deny one and, and still have the other. Yeah, I mean, and, and that does fit in with, with Matthew, you know, teach everything that I have given you. I mean, that's, it's, it's a very, it's a totality. We don't get to to pick and choose. To, we don't get to cut and paste what we want to teach and what we don't. These these things go together. And and Jesus, he comes into our this creation, right? The creator is entering into his, which is just, a, I mean, that's a mind-blowing thing, the incarnation. And and then he still, and I think this is, you know, Mark continues, he makes use of this creation to, to bring about um, this salvation. So whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. God makes use of water, one of the, the most, the simplest things in this creation, the most common thing on the planet. How much, was it like 97% of this planet is water? And, and God is going to make use of that to deliver his salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. It's a, you know, you're talking about that sacramental emphasis. Here it's quite explicit at the end of Mark's gospel. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, so you have the spirit hovering over the face of the waters in, in creation. Yeah. And water is the life-giving element. I mean, whenever they're going to all these planets, you know, they want to say, is there water? Is there water? Because water is the best indicator of where life is possible. So, I mean, he takes which, that which is a part of creation and takes it up to a, a higher level. So, um, and, and baptism is, again, that's, that's the sacrament of the new creation. So, um, where we are born again from on high. So, it's the, the proclamation and baptism go together. I mean, it's, it's part of, as you say, it's part of one whole. It's not, you can't separate these things, these things out. And... <laughs> That's another reason. I, I mean, I don't want to lose this verse, and I'm not going to lose this verse. So um, it's just too great. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Yeah, it's a fantastic promise from our Lord. Now, you've been saying that Mark is a very Lutheran gospel. Verses 17 and 18 don't sound terribly Lutheran to me, Dr. Scare. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Okay, you got <laughs> so, me. <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we understand the, the signs that will accompany those? I mean, we can, we can look at, for example, in the book of Acts and see these things happening. But should we understand these signs as, uh, maybe this way, should we understand them as promises of, of something that will always happen? Or are they predictions of things that have happened, but we shouldn't necessarily expect them to always have and maybe i've tipped my hand already what's well, fine it's the first part i do think you know the casting out of demons still takes place all the time and i think we're going to be doing a lot more of this as our culture goes to towards a kind of paganism and you know as a pastor you go into certain houses you can feel the air is almost heavy 
Uh, there's no peace, love, charity. There's no kindness. It's just kind of the malevolent forces, anger and bitterness. And these are signs, I think, of demons and of the evil spirits that are always with us. Um, so that sort of thing still does happen. Um, as far as the speaking in tongues, you're right. Um, I used to be a lot more positive towards Pentecostals, thinking, you know, well, at least I'd, I'd rather have a Pentecostal than a pagan, right? I mean, so uh. on the other hand, being in Africa on my various visits, I got a different view of them up close because there really was a lot of just yelling and kind of um, whatever that spirit was, it didn't impress me as being the Holy Spirit. And when you look at tongues today, they're nothing like the tongues that were uh, used at Pentecost. So if you look at the book of Acts, there are a number of, there's the big Pentecost in Jerusalem, and there are a number of little Pentecosts. Um, like, and they, they are kind of like fireworks. So if you're going to you know, open up a new store, a mattress store, <laughs> the mattress store will open on Saturday. There'll be fireworks if, you know, and, and cotton candy for the kids. You, you do something to make it um, exciting at the beginning to draw attention. But then you look at like Paul's ministry afterwards, and he's just doing the kinds of things that we do, meat and potatoes, preaching the gospel, baptizing babies, and having the Lord's Supper. So, but, so when you look at the tongues, it has nothing to do with Pentecostalism, which is the exact opposite, because there the idea is you cannot understand the tongues. Um, it's, it's a different language, um, kind of a manic language. But if you look at the tongues in the book of Acts, they are an example that the gospel is, in fact, for all creation. Because it doesn't matter what nation you're from, everybody was healing, hearing this gospel in his own language. So, yeah, to, to the apostles and to that generation, there were given some extraordinary gifts as a kind of a way of saying, look here, uh, these guys were the fishermen and they were the tax collectors, but you at least got to give them a hearing. If, they, if, they're, if the guy is doing a miracle, raising the dead, he, let's at least hear what he has to say now. Uh, Dr. Scare, we, we've got about five minutes, and I do want to make sure we, we pick up verses 19 and 20, because you know here we get that language that we speak in the creed, that Jesus was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. I've, I've often, since I've been a pastor, one of my favorite feast days in the church is the ascension of our Lord. And I think we, I think we neglect it sometimes. We preach Christ crucified and risen, and that is wonderful. We need to do that. But I think we need to, we need to also remember to preach Christ's ascension, particularly in these, these gray and latter days, to, to know that Christ has ascended and sits at the right hand of the throne of God, that, that he is the one reigning. I think should should fill us with with boldness and confidence as Christians to go out and and do the things that he has given as as Mark says you know that the Lord is doing the work working with them in this now with about uh, probably 4 minutes now take us into these last two verses give us the the comfort of of Christ's ascension and session at the right hand of God help us to wrap things up this morning Yeah the ascension is a number of things but um First of all, if you only had Matthew and you have Lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the age, you might be like looking for him on top of the mountain or something like that. Um, but no, he's going to be with us in different ways in the breaking of the bread and prayers. He's going to be with us where two or three are gathered. So he is going to remain with us. Nevertheless, it's also, um, 
he ascends into the right hand of God, and we learn from Colossians, to fulfill all things. So by ascending to the right hand of God, he's not moving away from us. But he's actually, in the Gospel of Mark, it's a, it's a great picture of they're out there on the boat, and Jesus is on the mountain praying. And he's practicing a little bit for the ascension for the people. He, wa- he wants them to know, even though they think they're on the boat alone, they are not. But on the mountain, he is praying for them. He is our advocate with the Father. So, you know, it, put in a good word for me. That's how my son got a job, because... Uh, uh, my wife's boss put in a good word. All of a sudden, he gets the job. Well, when we have our Lord Jesus Christ putting in a good word for us, um, that's a pretty good word. When, 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 the father, when the son asks the father for our salvation, and he knows that his son died on the cross for us, yeah, he's going to listen to him. So it's absolutely marvelous that he's on our side. And it's one of us. It's Mary's son who now is sitting on the – talking about uh, – uh, reversal, so talking about an incredible, I guess, getting a, a raise or getting a promotion. But that's that's our guy up there. He he's our he's our brother. Thanks be to God. It's almost it's too much and too wonderful to think about. So the yeah the ascension is um is the it's it's the exclamation point on the resurrection. The resurrection is the triumph. Now this is the exclamation point of he, um, he has risen to the Father, and, and he will live and reign for forever. So, again, that gets back to the whole courage thing, which we need a good dose of during these times, but we have good reason to have courage because, because he lives and reigns eternally now. With just about a minute, Dr. Scare, give us more of that courage from the Gospel of Mark, from this text, as, as we seek to live our lives as Christians in this time that we live in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to admit, like, I wake up sometimes fretful, and then I slap myself a little bit, says, what, why, are you, why are you walking around like that? Why are you so gloomy? Don't you recognize that the victory is already ours? And, I, and I, I just, in the Gospel of Mark, it's, we ha, it, his emphasis really is on the presence of Christ. In the presence of Christ, you're on the boat, you're everywhere on the boat in the Gospel of Mark. It looks like it's going to capsize. Our Lord looks like he's sleeping Hey, why did he send us in the boat by ourselves? No, don't be afraid. That boat's never going down because uh, the Lord is in it. The Lord is taking care. So we might lose uh, things in this life. We might even lose our lives, but that's no reason. And oh, look, all these 11 disciples lost their lives, and they don't regret it. They live the best lives ever because they live lives proclaiming the gospel. Dr. Peter Scare is professor of New Testament and chairman of the Department of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Dr. Scare, thanks for being with us this morning. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much for what you do. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Tomorrow, we're going to be starting a series on First and Second Peter, as well as the book of Jude. If you have any questions about those books coming up, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Jesus is risen. He is ascended. He is reigning, and he will return in him. We have eternal life. Take courage, dear Christians. The victory is yours in Christ. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.